Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, June 27th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, June 24th, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us once again to help us address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? And this is part 20, and it's tentatively titled, Witches, Warlocks, and Weissman, because he may as well be a witch, not a warlock. He should be a witch. I have my reasons. Hello, Truthvids. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, yeah. So we've finally got through all the uh, doctrines, and now we're getting into all the witchcraft BS. But but it's really funny how um, Weissman at first seems to indicate there's nothing wrong with Jews, and now he's going to associate two seed line with Jews, essentially smearing two seed lines. So he's kind of being hypocritical here, and he's using another trick out of the um, Jew playbook, and that is to associate something or someone as being a Jew or Jewish so that we we kind of see it as being bad, you know, and that's usually a last resort, you know, like how they um, try and make Christ a Jew, Paul of Tarsus a Jew, and even now they'll try and claim Adolf Hitler was a secret Jewish agent because they know people <laughs> just hate it. And um, so here he's doing the same thing and trying to claim that two seed line, it's Jewish, it's Masonic, it's demonic. So he's using the exact same tactic. Right, Bill? Well, well right. And, and that's a very good observation. But we won't quite – I talk about that a little here, but we won't quite get to that point today where we cover the details. And, and towards the end of his chapter, he saves the Kabbalah for last, right? And, and he is doing that very thing. He's associating two seed line with the Kabbalah, even though throughout this book, he has insisted that the people of Judea, which are the Jews of today, I mean, let's face it, they, that they were all pure Israelites. So if the Judeans were all pure Israelites, even if Weissman did concede that today they are mongrels because they've mixed with people of um, other races since the destruction of Judea, if the people of Judea were all pure Israelites, then chances are the people that wrote the Talmud just two or three centuries later were pure Israelites. And that's simply not true. But now he's going to, in this chapter, associate two seed line with that evil Talmud and those wicked Jews. But the people that wrote that, according to Weissman, were most likely Israelites, and there was nothing wrong with them. They only had the wrong <laughs> beliefs. So, so yeah, I, I mean, that is hypocritical. That's... Weissman's basically a hypocrite. Well, we've proven that all throughout this series, I think. But yeah, that's a very valid point. And, and we could probably discuss that even more next week when we actually present the half of his chapter, which, um, which talks about the Talmud and the Kabbalah. 
Yeah, and just um, imagine that your race is so hated, you know, that the mere mention of them associated with something will turn people away from it in revulsion. I mean, that's that's basically their ace up their sleeves. If their last resort, they'll do that. Well, right. And and just because something is in the Talmud, and, and this was the argument that Clifton and I have had for, for many years in, in respect to this, just because something is in the Talmud doesn't make it wrong or evil. Not every idea that's in the Talmud is wrong or evil because a great number of them are based in Scripture. Now, of course, the rabbis and the Jews were wrong about a lot of things because they, they a lot of the Talmud and, and the Mishnah and, and, and the commentaries on the law is just written to dispute with God. It's just a dispute with God and the rabbinical attempts to claim the law as their own while they could circumvent the law. And I've read enough of the commentaries in the Talmud to understand that. So, the intent of the Talmud is to support the evil, um, paganistic, sodomite, sexual perversions that are inherent to Jews, while at the same time claiming that the Torah is their book and, and it belongs to them alone. And, and wow. So, so it's a, basically the Talmud is 40 volumes of hypocrisy or, or however many books they printed in. It, it's pretty voluminous. But just because something is in there doesn't make it wrong. And as we pointed out several times throughout the series, there is Christian literature that is considered apocryphal, that we don't believe should be apocryphal necessarily, but that was written around the time of Christ in, in the first century BC to the first century AD and shows that early Christians of that time, and, and I say first century BC because it's um, debatable when the fourth book of Maccabees was written. It seems to be a Christian work, and it may have been just slightly pre-Christian. However, the Christian literature that I'm speaking about and that we've cited here throughout the series does indeed show that what is in the Talmud concerning Genesis chapter 3 was also understood by people who were not Talmudic Jews, and it actually predates the writings of the Talmud. So Weissman is misrepresenting that. He lies at every turn. He lies constantly throughout this book, and I hope that we've demonstrated that. And, and here again today, we're going to show that Weissman, at, at the end of this program, we're going to show that Weissman was not a Christian. He couldn't have been, because he reduces Christ himself to the level of slanderer. He's basically accusing Christ and the apostles of being slanderers against the Jews. Over the past 19 parts of this series addressing Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seedline Doctrine? Discussing his first four chapters of this book, 
we hope to have fully established the truths of our seed mine profession and the fact that Charles Weissman misinterpreted many things and even made many outright lies in order to attempt to refute those truths. Now we will continue to present the rest of Weissman's book as he wrongly believes that he has refuted our position and now he attempts to slander it, evidently hoping to forever discredit our doctrines. As we undertake this endeavor, we will try to avoid repeating much of the basis for our beliefs here in, in these final presentations, as we have already elaborated greatly on all of the basic reasons for believing in what is usually called two-seed line. But so that we can defend against these charges here, we may have to repeat some things we believe and we'll try to do so without too much elaboration. I don't want to make this series of presentations tedious. It might already be tedious. Here Weissman attempts to slander our seedline doctrine by associating it with witchcraft, Gnosticism, Freemasonry, the Talmud, the rabbis of Judaism, and ultimately the Kabbalah. But even this order of his own illustrations is deceptive. As we have demonstrated in our series on the Jews in medieval Europe several years ago, that Freemasonry was in large part founded on the Kabbalah. But the Kabbalah was not written until the 12th century, or perhaps the 13th, by a Jew in Spain. Of course, much of it was based on older systems, namely the Talmud and medieval Neoplatonism. But the work has no authentic ancient authority. In turn, the Kabbalah is the link to witchcraft and alchemy in medieval Europe. And in the time of John Dee, the alchemists, who were practically all Kabbalists, and this we've established in that series, the alchemists became speculative masons. They actually coined that term. And ultimately, they were admitted into the guilds of the Freemasons, whereafter, Masonry became a tool in the hands of the Jewish Kabbalists by which to inculcate Christians into Jewish teachings and ultimately the accomplishment of Jewish objectives, Jewish social and political objectives. Weissman's list is deceptive, because perhaps with the exception of witchcraft and demonology, depending upon how those words are defined, all of these systems or philosophies with which he endeavors to link seedline are rooted in early Judaism with various influences from Greek philosophy and pagan concepts. Early Judaism also adopted elements of witchcraft and pagan demonology. But by saying early Judaism, we do not mean to include the Hebrew Bible, which is certainly not a Jewish book.
Yeah, you know, I have one example of, of the link between Judaism and witchcraft is with the so-called modern. I mean, today, these so-called Orthodox Jews who twirl chickens over their heads and imagine to have transferred their sins to the chickens are actually practicing a form of witchcraft. They do that right and on the street. And even their symbol, right? That um, what was it called? The double triangles, the inverted triangles, the symbol of Israel. Right. That's nothing to do with um, the Bible. It's to do with the, the Rephaim star, is it? Where they're warned by Yahweh not to uh, associate with any of them or their practices or their symbols. Oh, right. I do believe that that's the star of of Rephaim. The um, it, it's difficult to prove because we don't have any archaeological artifacts that by which to show that from from ancient Palestine, right? But it certainly has nothing to do with David or Solomon or, or anybody in the Bible, except maybe the devils. So yes, that that um, star, that six pointed star that they use, is also prominent in witchcraft, but I believe perhaps in modern witchcraft. I'm, I'm not, I can't speak for medieval witchcraft. I, I do have some books here. I, I have Manly P. Hall's um, Secret Teachings of All the Ages. I forget the exact title of it, but I didn't have time to peruse that and, and didn't have a need to peruse that for our address of Weissman here. So now we shall proceed with chapter 5 of Weissman's book, which is titled, Sources of Satanic Seedline Beliefs. And th this is another digression, right? It, if you search through everything that I've written at Christogenia, or everything that Clifton Emmerheiser has written, and everything we say about two seed line is cited. We don't say anything unless we cite it, unless we give you book, chapter, and verse of where we've gotten it from. Neither of us have ever quoted the Talmud to support our beliefs, the Talmud or the Kabbalah or any of this rubbish. Now, there are... Um, early Aramaic targums, which are preserved in the Talmud. But they are not really the Talmud. There's a lot of work preserved in the Talmud. The Torah is preserved in the Talmud, which isn't necessarily Talmudic in nature. Now, Clifton has cited those early targums, and so have I, but I cite them with reservations and explain that their origin. However, the, my arguments about two seed line do not even depend on the Targums. So, we really don't use anything but scripture to support our position on two seed line. So none of these are the sources for our beliefs this is only Weissman's claim that these are the sources, but you won't find this in our writing.
you'll only find Bible references and references to um, lost or apocryphal books. The Enoch literature we could count as a lost book. I don't trust the Ethiopic Enoch, but the fragments in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I believe, are certainly authoritative, where the Ethiopic is not to be trusted because it's full of interpolations and embellishments, in my opinion. So we cite some of that literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls literature and other apocryphal sources, to support our um, two-seed-line beliefs so far as to show, only to show. And this is the same reason that we quote or cite the Targums. It's only to show that other early Christians or early Judeans, because we don't really know if the authors of the Targums were Israelite Judeans or Edomite Judeans, but to show that other early commenters, commentators on the scriptures or writers, authors of apocryphal scriptures, understood the Bible the same way that we do. That's the only reason why we cite that work. But all of our proofs of two seed line come directly from the Bible. And, of course, Weissman has rejected them all. Eat doesn't mean, um, doesn't have any sexual connotations, and touch doesn't have any sexual connotations, and he, he um, dismantled or attempted to dismantle our interpretations of Genesis chapter 3, but he's failed with that also because I've shown from the Epic of Gilgamesh that the language in Genesis chapter 3 is using the same idioms as the Epic of Gilgamesh did to describe sexual relations. And the Epic of Gilgamesh was a, a, a work of literature that was widely known and was extant across the Near Eastern and Middle Eastern world at the time that Moses wrote Genesis. So Moses wasn't copying from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Moses was simply using idioms which must have been well known at the time. So Weissman probably never read my, my, my paper, Semitic Idioms in Genesis chapter 3. I don't know if he ever read it or not because I never spoke to the man. But it was published about seven years before he died. So he had an opportunity to read it. In fact, it was published about 10 years before he died on Clifton's website. I just don't know if Clifton ever sent it to him. And, and I'm, I'm digressing again, I apologize. But I, I just have to, um, I, I see this Weissman's list of sources of satanic seed line beliefs and, and I think about why I believe two seed line, and, and I see two very different opinions, right? So, Weissman's chapter begins on page 42. I don't know if you want to say anything in reference to all that before I start. Um, I was just going to speak um, masonry, that originally it wasn't necessarily uh, an evil thing, it was just kind of like what we have today with unions, right? It was, you know, people with a trade who just wanted to protect their trade 
like say a blacksmith or someone who produced clothes and had a skill they would get together and basically protect their job right and um, well, eventually it was infiltrated by the jews well, well would that right. Be correct in right, right masonry I, I believe it was primarily scottish but there were masonic guilds in england as well and in the time of king james the first the king of england he was king james the fifth i believe of scotland right before he became king of england well well he had appointed one of his courtiers to, to organize the Masonic lodges for, for whatever reason, because they were all disparate and, and disconnected. He, he wanted them organized. And after that happened, and, and perhaps he wanted them organized for nefarious reasons, but the Masonic lodges were a lot of his support. And he was a he, he was a Catholic and not a Protestant. So the the Protestants were that they did fear that these Stuart kings would drag them back into the Catholic Church. I believe that that struggle was going on. Well, well, he organized the Masonic lodges, and at that same time, John D had had um I think John D was actually still alive was very influential in the court of Elizabeth I, Elizabeth I, at the end of the 1500s. John Dee died in 1608. So that's right around the time of King James, right? Just a few years before the King James Bible is published. So John D. brought the, and, and I explained this in a podcast, he brought the Kabbalah to England and to the court of Elizabeth I. He was an alchemist, and among other things, he was a, a, a diviner, he was a necromancer, he was into all sorts of sorcery, and he spent significant time in Europe with other alchemists, and struggle over the Kabbalah and the Jewish literature was going on in, in Europe for many, many centuries on and off. And it flared up just before the Reformation, which was before John Dee's time. But the fact is that while many of the Roman Catholics and the Dominican monks especially wanted to rid Europe of the Talmud and the Kabbalah, there were many alchemists and reformers who were basically in bed with the Jews during the time of the Reformation because, of course, the Jews wanted to weaken the power of Catholicism. So they supported the reformers. And the books were, were the political battle was lost by the, the Dominican monks and the people that wanted to get rid of the Kabbalah, and the books stayed. And all of these alchemists in, in Europe, whether they were Jewish or Gentile, were fascinated and entranced by this Kabbalah. And they were all practicing Kabbalah. And John Dee brought that to the court of Elizabeth I. And doing that, there was a new class that appeared in England 
and they were called speculative masons. Even though they weren't masons at all, to be a to be a mason, you had to be a stonemason. You had to be practicing the trade of stonemason. You had to be a journeyman. You couldn't just be an apprentice and walk in and garner all these secrets, these trade secrets. And they kept their the secrets of their trade well guarded. And and that was at a um, they were protecting their own homegrown industry by doing that. They were protecting it from outsiders. They didn't want people of other nations, even other white nations, coming in and learning their trade. It, it was job security. So you're right about that. Well, these speculative masons, ultimately in the time of King James, got into the lodges of the Freemasons and, and of, the, of the stonemasons. And, and that's what basically founded Freemasonry which wasn't stonemasonry anymore. And, and that they, that they joined all those lodges and basically took them over. It, it became something different than stonemasonry. So that that's probably an oversimplification of that story, but it's the best that I could tell it in just a couple of minutes. <laughs> with that, we will start with Charles Weissman on page 42 of his book. And he starts out by saying, or by lying, while the concept of a serpent or satanic entity having sex with Eve and thereby producing Cain is not found within scripture, which is a lie, it is found in other sources. The concepts of the satanic seedline doctrine are not some new beliefs, but are a rehash of old superstitious and pagan beliefs. And that's a lie, and we will address it. Of course, we have shown from our own study of the language and idioms of Genesis chapter 3 that the concept certainly is found in Scripture. Furthermore, Christ himself, speaking of men and describing them as vipers and the offspring of vipers and describing them as descendants of Cain, which is certainly what he did in John 8.44, he was certainly not rehashing old superstitions. Why would Christ do that? Why would a man, God incarnate, who came to teach truth and be light to his people, why would he simply rehash old superstitions? However, we have also seen that Weissman did not really believe in Christ. In fact, I think he said that Christ was only repeating um, Babylonian and Persian dualism earlier in his book. So he really doesn't believe the gospel. Weissman is really not a Christian. In any event, Weissman's entire thesis is predicated on the notion that he has already proven himself to be true, and we have refuted that to show that he is not true. So we are not compelled to accept his premise. He continues and he says, the idea of an evil supernatural entity having direct contact with man is found in most 
pagan religions. The serpent was also a common subject within many pagan religions and cultural beliefs. Throughout the ancient pagan world, the serpent was the symbol of the creative principle or the germinal life principle. It thus possessed supernatural powers by which it could cause or bring life. And this is only partially true. But first, that this, um, that this idea of direct contract, superna evil supernatural entity having direct contact with man is found throughout the New Testament, right? I mean, how many people in the New Testament were possessed by demons? And Christ and his apostles described them as being possessed by demons. Isn't that a form of evil supernatural entity? No matter what we want to think about what a demon is, for prayer to cast out an evil spirit, that's an evil supernatural entity that we may not understand. Or today we might have a different view of what it is, but that doesn't make the view that which the apostles had, that doesn't make their view wrong, even though we have a different view today, even though today we are sophisticated and scientific about it. So we can't, even though the viewpoint is different, that doesn't mean that we can consider the scripture to be wrong. And it's Weissman that's wrong. While the ancient Sumerians and Babylonians had in their mythology the myth that the serpent Tiamat created life out of chaos, they did not necessarily believe that Tiamat was evil. But even this is an oversimplification of various legends found in inscriptions that do not even necessarily agree with one another. The Akkadian god Marduk overcame and killed the serpent Tiamat in much the same way that the Greek god Apollo slew the serpent Python and gained the power of divination, from which was spawned the famous oracle of Apollo at Delphi. In the Sumerian and Akkadian legends, as well as in the Greek, there are fables of gods descending from heaven in order to have intercourse with and impregnate women. And these are found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, as well as in the classical Greek epics and other works of early literature. But neither were they seen as evil. In fact, the gods of the Akkadian and Greek pantheons were much more often seen as being beneficent. There are many other parallels between early Greek and Akkadian epics, and also with the Hebrew Bible. But only in the Bible are these gods seen as the evil fallen angels. And only in the Bible is the serpent who created a world from rebellion seen as an inherently evil entity. Paul of Tarsus elucidated the fact that pagan religions were derived from the ostensibly fallen angels.
in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in Colossians chapter 2. In the Old Testament, pagan idolatry was described as the worship of satyrs and demons. Realizing that there was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the serpent had represented. And that was also the reason why Cain had built a city. <laughs> there was more than just Cain. And there was more than just Cain and his wife when he had built a city. It doesn't say he built a house. It says he built a city. That view that it was an entire tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which the serpent had represented, that that view is actually a race, also accounts for how there were giants in the earth in those days. Speaking of people in the earth in the days before the race mixing began, which is described in Genesis chapter 6, once we realize that, then we can understand that these things were actually what was described in the Revelation as the fall of a race of angels. These are the so-called sons of God, or as it is in the Enoch literature, the sons of heaven, which race mixed with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. Weissman had claimed that the sons of God were the sons of Cain, and the sons of, he that the sons of Adam or the, the daughters of men, were the descendants of Seth. That's what Weissman claimed. But if Cain was from Adam and Eve, and Seth was from Adam and Eve, why would it be a sin for the descendants to mix? Even if Cain was a murderer, David was a murderer, it wasn't a sin for David's sons to take Adamic women, why would it be a sin? Weissman never answered that question. He just wanted us to believe his answer was true. And I don't even think he ever thought about the implications of his proposal. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was already present in the garden when Adam was created in Genesis chapter 2. And the only law which Yahweh had given to Adam was not to eat of that tree. That law was the only law given to that point in the Bible. And it was the only law which could have possibly been broken in Genesis chapter 3 and again in Genesis chapter 6. Once all of this is realized, and I'm trying to repeat myself in, in few words here, it becomes evident that the Bible is actually a refutation of paganism and an explanation that the world created out of chaos came out of rebellion against Yahweh, the true and only God. This true God had called Abraham out of an evil world embroiled in pagan idolatry and immorality and promised that his descendants would inherit, overcome, and ultimately supplant that evil world, which was established by the serpent, which Weissman actually admitted existed. Weissman admitted that the serpent was an intelligent entity that had a world order contrary to God's order. 
but he wouldn't explain what it was. That is the entire Bible story. And the process is ongoing today. So it is no mistake that Moses in Genesis and Christ in Revelation chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 13 had each used language which described the primordial world, the world before Adam, as having been associated with a serpent or a dragon, which was also the devil and Satan. And didn't a lot of the, you know, other Adamic races, at least originally, like right back, you know, when they got started, started their civilization, you see evidence that they believed in one, just one God, you know, Yahweh, until they very quickly <laughs> fell into paganism and multiple gods. Didn't the Egyptians, for example, originally only believe in Atem, was it, that he was the one God? And even the, I saw evidence, the Etruscans, they originally, if you look at their, some of their artwork, you can see that they believed in just one God until the Romans conquered them and all the, you know, surrounding civilizations got merged and all their gods got merged into a pantheon. And you'd expect that, wouldn't you, that originally as they came off the ark, you know, starting with a small family as they went out, it gradually deteriorated and got corrupted. Well, well, that's right. And, and that's because there were other people here who did not descend from Noah and his sons. And that's the and, and underlying theme of Scripture was that all of those other nations had become mixed and, and adopted the um, fables, stories, myths of these other people and folded them into their own belief. And, and that's the story of Egypt, that they started with a, a god, which they had um, represented as the sun. Now, was that the original concept of their god? I somehow don't think so. I think the sun, they used the symbol of the sun to represent that god, because that god did declare himself first as being light. So, they used the symbol of the sun to represent that God, but that sun had a sun. And the sun of the sun, and I'm using a wordplay, right? The sun, S-U-N, Aten, in the earliest Egyptian myths, Aten had a son who, as he passed the sky each day, had fought off the dragon and saved the um, sun from being swallowed by the dragon. And if you really think about that, that's the purpose of Christ. And I really do believe that that is a very, very early prophecy of Christ. Because Christ came to save his father by the dragon. Now, that sounds crazy, I know. But... If it wasn't for the advent of Christ, we would not have Bibles today, and we would have no knowledge of God. The dragon, the Jew, would have swallowed up and exterminated God 2,000 years ago, but they couldn't do it.
That's why we see in the Revelation that the Herod the Great is depicted as a great dragon who sought to destroy the Christ child. We see in the oldest um, recorded religion of the ancient Egyptians a parallel with Revelation chapter 12 and the dragon who would destroy the Christ child. So we can conclude that the Egyptians, being a branch of our Adamic race, um, had actually recorded things that reflect some of the earliest understanding of our race. And it appears later in the Hebrew Bible. That's one example. I discussed... Right, and people like Wiseman try to say that Christianity just copied those religions, right? But in reality, if you understand that we were all at one time, you know, one family, one race, which gradually spread, that's exactly what you would expect. It only proves the history of the early Genesis, you know, uh, post-flood. Well, well, right. And, and the Bible doesn't talk about any um, primordial corruption of God's creation, except in um, the Enoch literature. And it's evident in certain words of the prophets, but it's not explained. But it is explained in Revelation chapter 12. And Christ himself had said that he came to reveal things kept secret since the world began. And right there in Matthew chapter 13, where he said that, he gave the parable of the wheat and the tares. And the devil being present to plant tares in a field of wheat demonstrates the fact that there was a primordial corruption of God's creation. Men should be able to understand that. It's not hard. And we see these truths elucidated in various ways in all of the earliest myths of our race, in, in the, um, the Akkadian, in the Sumerian, in the Egyptian, but most often, they take the, the, the attitude of the opposition and not the Christian attitude of those who w would stand with the one true God. It, it's the perspective is different in the pagan literature. It's the perspective of the enemies of that God. It's the perspective of the enemies of Christ, the ancient pagan enemies, because the seed of the serpent is a lot more than just Jews. The, the Sumerians, the, the, the Babylonians, Babylon was originally founded by Canaanites. The first, um, the, the modern Babylon, now this is apart from the ancient Babel, the modern city of Babylon, modern, the later city of Babylon, the 19th century, 20th century B.C., Babylon was founded by Canaanites at first. Nimrod later made Babel part of his empire. Well, following that, Babel must have been destroyed at some point because Canaanite tribes had ruled in Babylon in the 
19th century BC, and they had built their city there. Later, Babylon was rebuilt again by the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans were not Canaanites. So it seems that several cities actually sat in that area and bore that name. The, the, um, the Babylonians, the, the Akkadians, the Sumerians, they had a lot of, um, they had some differences in, in their beliefs that there was um, innovations all the time. You could see the embellishments which took place from one culture to the next, to the next, from one language to the next, to the next. But a lot of the core beliefs were the same. And a lot of the epics are repeated from one, from the Sumerian to the Akkadian to the Babylonian. And, and, and they prevailed at different times, but a lot of the legends are repeated, but then many things are added. So that they started off with a common belief at, at, at the core, at the base of it. But as time went on, that they went in different branches and created embellishments and new legends appear, which hadn't been, um, which aren't known to have existed earlier. And, and it's confusing because the, we can't assume that the voluminous number of inscriptions, the multitudinous number of inscriptions that have survived, we can't assume that they represent the entire body of their literature. And a lot of the inscriptions that have survived haven't even been translated yet. There are numerous inscriptions that haven't been translated yet. So we don't know everything about them. But they did indeed seem to have a core of truth and, and a lot of um, common ground with the Hebrew scriptures. But it's usually from the opposite perspective. From the perspective of the enemies of the Hebrews, of the God of the Hebrews, and not allies or, or, or except in the case of that those original ancient Egyptian legends concerning Aten and and Osiris. But those things have been embellished. Those things have been embellished and and changed over the years, over the centuries. Okay, that's another digression. Weissman resorts to paganism in an attempt to refute the truth of God. That's basically what he did there. And now he begins to slander the seed line doctrine with other accusations of malicious association under the subtitle, Witchcraft and Demonology. <clears throat> there he says, and I'm going to read two whole paragraphs and try not to comment too much. The subject of demonology encompasses various stories, legends, rumors, and myths involving the devil or demons who assumed the form of a man or animal so as to have sex with women. In the book, The Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology, the author devotes some eight pages to the subject of sexual relations with devils. The source and history of this subject are related by the author as follows. Now he's going to quote one paragraph from this book by uh, 
Russell Hobbins, Russell Robbins, I'm sorry. It was first published in 1959. Theologians and demonologists were puzzled as to how demons, who were spirits, could have relations with humans. The fact itself was accepted, for it had the authority of the Bible and church behind it. Now, we would only say that that's the authority of the interpretations of the Bible by the church. But we don't believe, we meaning modern proponents of or, or modern bearers of seed line doctrine or two seed line, we don't believe that the Bible says that demons had sex with people, demons that were spirits. We don't believe that. But the early church did. So he's not wrong about that. He's right. The fact itself was accepted for it had the authority of the Bible and the church behind it. Augustine, 420 AD, in his De Civitate Dei, which is the city of God, expounded Genesis 6-4, and now he's quoting Augustine, the sons of God came unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. He was the first to consider fully whether the angels, since they are spirits, are able bodily to have intercourse with women. Augustine inclined to the affirmative, although he denied that the angels of God so sinned. So Augustine was in conflict with himself. Pope Innocent VIII and Bonaventure also agreed that intercourse between devils and humans are possible. Augustine, and in particular Thomas Aquinas, now Augustine was the 5th century and Thomas Aquinas is the 15th century, so there's a thousand years between them, affirmed that demons as evil spirits either entered into corpses or else made new bodies out of the elements. And that's the end of the citation from Russell Robbins. First, identity Christians should not care about Augustine, who was raised a Catholic, spent 10 years in adulthood as a Manichaean. And, and we will discuss Manichaeanism, um, I believe, next week. I don't think I get to that portion in this presentation. I've already written some notes on it. Augustine was a Manichaean and spent 10 years in that belief, in, and that was a major heresy at the time. And then he turned from that to Neoplatonism. He had Simplician, the then future Bishop of Mian, for a personal friend. And it was Neoplatonism and Simplician who persuaded him back to Catholicism. But Augustine was never a true Christian. And after befriending another famous theologian of the time, Ambrose of Mion, Augustine wrote in his own account of his conversion, and I began to love him, of course, not 
at the first as a teacher of the truth, for I had entirely despaired of finding that in thy church, but as a friendly man. So, Augustine grew fond of Ambrose, but not because he was a good teacher or, or a teacher of truth, only because he was a nice guy. Like many esteemed so-called church fathers, in his later writings, Augustine never really shed his pagan philosophies. That being said, simply because early Catholics, Gnostics, and Jews thought that the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, or the so-called sons of God in Genesis chapter 6, represented spirit demons does not mean that we believe that. We certainly do not think fallen angels, Nephilim, or the sons of God were angels or spirit demons. The Nephilim, later in scripture, are people. In the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy, Nephilim are people, not spirit demons. So in the Hebrew of Genesis chapter 6, the same Nephilim are not spirit demons, they're people. So projecting these beliefs onto us is unfair. But to be fair to Weissman, this is what was taught by many early two seed line pastors and teachers, including Bertrand Compare, Wesley Swift, and even in the earlier years of his ministry, Clifton Emmeheiser. Clifton believed it. He believed that angels could take on the form of men on earth and have sex with women. And Clifton tried to explain that from that perspective. In my own writing, I do not know if I explicitly connected the fallen angels as the ancestors of the non-Adamic races until I wrote Broken Cisterns, which was published by Clifton in 2004. And then I connected the fallen angels to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when I wrote The Problem with Genesis 4.1. I'm sorry. The problem with Genesis 4.1 was Clifton's paper, right? The problem with Genesis 6, 1 to 4, which was published by Clifton in 2007. I may have said these things before those times. I don't remember. I do not remember if I explained the possibility that the fallen angels were only a race of men here on earth who fell from the grace of God until I began the Pragmatic Genesis series in 2013. That's the first time that I remember explaining that. I don't know if I did it sooner, right? I, I, by then I already had six, 700 podcasts. I don't remember. I could not have put that together until I had read the appropriate Sumerian inscriptions, which led me to better understand how the terms heaven and earth were often used as idioms. And I probably didn't read those inscriptions until 2006, 2007. That's my guess, right? So nevertheless, 
Swift and Compare, and later Clifton, had all believed that Genesis chapters 3 and 6 described sexual relations between heavenly beings and Adamic people. And that the so-called fallen angels of antiquity were heavenly beings. That is what Swift and Compare believed, and Clifton did follow that. But that does not mean that the fallen angels were not men. And angels who are not fallen appear as men throughout Scripture. Evidently, medieval Christians also believed the Scriptures and attempted to explain to them, ex attempted to explain the Scriptures in terms they can understand. But Weissman did not believe the Scriptures, while he criticizes those who did. Who did? In, in other so, words, so you're saying um, essentially the, these uh, fallen angels—they didn't necessarily fly down from the sky and and all that kind of stuff. Right. Absolutely not. They were men. That these Nephilim, the sons of God, of Genesis chapter six. Now, that's the reading of the Masoretic text, and it's an ancient reading. It goes back to the Septuagint, where it says sons of God. But some manuscripts of the Septuagint says, say angels rather than sons of God. Now, that is an ancient reading, but I don't necessarily agree with it. I think it may have been a corruption. I can't prove that. But the Enoch literature in the Dead Sea Scrolls has the term sons of heaven in relation to that same event. It says sons of heaven on multiple occasions. If Adam is the son of God, there's nothing wrong with a son of God going into a daughter of Adam and... and <laughs> making children. So there's a, I see a problem in Genesis chapter 6, which is fully rectified and reconciled with the manuscripts that have angels rather than sons of God. I believe that's the Codex Alexandrinus, or at least some ancient copies of the Codex Alexandrinus. So if it says sons of heaven and it equates them to Nephilim in that same chapter in verse 4. And that was the chapter that Weissman purposely misread. As we explained earlier in the series, Weissman ignored the fact that it said there were giants, there were Nephilim in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and the Nephilim are being equated to that term sons of God in that passage and the Nephilim Nephilim means fallen ones the Enoch literature says that the sons of heaven did that so that's how I interpret Genesis chapter 6. And also um, Augustine and people 
you know, then who believed that um, there were devils and that they believed the Hollywood style of, you know, red demons with hooves and horns, right? They didn't understand that if you just went to the Middle East, you would see a lot of devils or Africa. They didn't understand that they were just men. Well, well, right. They didn't understand that devils are men. I mean, when the Apostle Peter said that the beware because the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour, he's talking about men. He's not talking about demons with red demons with pitchforks and hooves and horns. But there is a direct relation to the traditional depictions of the red demon with hooves and horns and the ancient Greek satyr. And the word for the satyr comes right from the Hebrew word, which is satir. It, it perhaps it was pronounced. I mean, we really don't know how ancient Hebrew was pronounced. And it's translated as devil several times in the Old Testament. So sometimes in some contexts, it's translated as goat, and that's appropriate. But in some contexts, it's translated as devil, and that's appropriate. And once you understand that underlying Hebrew term can be translated as goat or devil, then you understand the origin of the Greek satyr. And people were worshiping these things. And satyrs were said to be having sex with women. And, and there's a lot of... Um, medieval art that depicts satyrs seducing women. And, and that is based right on that art. Those paintings are based right on those ancient Greek myths and legends and, and their own accounts about Bacchanalia and, and the, their religious mysteries and festivals. And, and Bacchanalia was basically... Um, we're going to discuss it, I think, later in this paper, right? Bacchanalia was basically a, an orgiastic rite where women went off into the into the forests and, and were said to have had sex with satyrs, who were really just men. In my opinion, they were just men. So probably Jews lurking in the woods knowing this was going to happen at a certain time of year. Canaanites or whatever, pagan, outsiders, whatever, doesn't matter. Maybe men of their own communities knew that they would have that opportunity. Okay, Bacchanalia was corrupt, and even the Romans tried to put a stop to it because they understood that it was corrupt and, and that it caused... Um, problems with marriages and adulteries and things like that. They knew it. The Romans tried to outlaw it. Okay. So Swift and Comprey did believe these things. But that doesn't mean that they're true. And that's not what we believe. We believe that these Nephilim were men. That this fall of the angels wasn't a fall from heaven. Because heaven and earth were used in ancient Sumerian or Akkadian literature to represent the seats of power and government, which is heaven, to the and compared to the common people, 
which was earth. And, and that's how the terms were used as idioms in ancient literature. So falling from heaven could simply be the fall from God's good grace from the position of rulership which he had given you over the earth. And where we see um, similar terms later in scripture of a new heaven and a new earth, that isn't saying that God is going to recreate a new planet and a new sky and new stars and a new universe as we know it. That's not what it's saying. It's just saying that he is going to reform the nations, the surviving nations in Revelation chapter 21, into a new kingdom with a new government. That's all it's saying. So a new hierarchy, but this time based on the deeds you did in your lifetime. Right. A new world order. That's what we look forward to. We Christians look forward to a new world order, but that new world order is the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the promise we have that that's going to be done. And that's how it works. That's what the angels fell from. They were men who fell from the position which God granted them because they corrupted his creation. They're just men. So the Nephilim, the giants in the earth in Genesis chapter 6, that we see that word Nephilim, and they're just men, because later on, where that same term is used to describe giants in, in Numbers and Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, and there we saw giants, it's the same word, Nephilim, that we see in Genesis chapter 6, and it means fallen ones. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And, and it describes that them as being very large in stature. So it uses another idiom and it says, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. And in other words, the, these were men of great stature, but they were still overcome. The Israelites still overcame them. They weren't angels floating down from heaven in Numbers chapter 33, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. And they weren't angels floating down from heaven in Genesis 6, 4. They were just men, and they were fallen ones, the sons of heaven, of the Enoch literature. So Swift and Compare had actually believed that angels came down from heaven. And they were wrong, but that's not what we believe. And we can establish what we believe from scripture, which is what I just did by showing the same word is used in Genesis 6 as it is in Numbers 13, right? I mean, that's establishing a fact from scripture. I didn't make that up, right? It's right there in the Bible. This brings us to page 43 of Weissman's book. And he says, the belief of demons having sex with women had the support of the Bible only because church leaders claimed it was in the Bible. And that's fine. They did claim that. But we don't, that's not where we get our belief in seed line from. Sorry, that's not us. 
It is interesting to note that Augustine's rationalistic explanation of the sons of God is that of Rabbi Simon ben Yohei, 150 AD, and he's citing the Jewish Encyclopedia published in 1902. He goes on to say, this notion of demonology, that sex with demons is possible and that children may result, was a Jewish doctrine adopted by some early heterodox Christians. Heterodox means the opposite of orthodox. Um, orthodox comes from two Greek words, and one of them means a teaching, and the other one means orthos, means straight, and heterodox means other. Hetero means other or different. So, first Weissman said that it belonged to Augustine in the church, but now it's saying it belongs to, it was adopted by some heterodox Christians. So he's trying to say that the church teachings reflected, which are the church's teachings reflected by Augustine, that they, that's a heterodoxy. It's a heresy that got into Christianity. That's what he's saying in, in that sentence. And he said, over the centuries, it became a theme for stories, beliefs, and doctrines. Now, I would agree with that. That's agreeable. I don't necessarily believe in, in where he says heterodox. I don't agree with him there because that was the general teaching of the early Christian churches from the time of the Council of Nicaea. So orthodoxy is orthodoxy, but that doesn't mean orthodoxy is Christianity. I don't consider orthodoxy as Christianity, but it's still orthodoxy, right? <laughs> and that's what orthodox Christians teach to this day. So it's interesting that early Christians, it was the doctrine was kind of there that it was possible, you know, that devils could mate with humans, but over time it was slowly erased. Well, well, right. I believe that the original view of devils was that devils were people, and and that's the view that Christ and the apostles had. But that correct teaching. That was not an, an early Christian view, an Orthodox Catholic or Greek Orthodox view, because that teaching was obscured both by the Jews and by the Platonists and, and by the, the, the pagan beliefs that they maintained when they became Roman Catholic Christians. Roman Catholicism folded in all sorts of pagan beliefs and, and never truly taught scripture the way the apostles had. So by the time you get to Roman Catholicism, four centuries after, or three centuries at least, after the apostles, from the time of Paul of Tarsus to the time of um, the Council of Nicaea, is almost three centuries, not quite. You, you had a, a, a radical shift in perceptions of Christianity and the New Testament. And that shift was because of paganism, Gnosticism, and Jews. As we explained, the ancient Sumerians, Babylonians, Assyrians, and Greeks had also believed 
that their gods could descend from heaven and have sexual relations with women or with men. And Zeus was accused of pederasty with little boys throughout all of the ancient traditions, throughout all of the classical Greek literature. But if early Christians had this understanding through the Bible, it must have been at least in part due to the misinterpretations of scripture offered them by Jews. As we also explained earlier in the series, there are two types of devils to which the idolatrous, sinful Israelites had made sacrifices. One type were shed, which were, were spirit demons and are first mentioned in that context in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, and again in the 106th Psalm in verse 7. The other type is satyrs, which are first mentioned in that context in Levit Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7. The satyr in Greek mythology was portrayed as a hybrid goat-human beast with an insatiable sexual appetite for human women. In Isaiah chapters 13 and 34, satyrs can dance in the houses of men and cry with their fellows as they occupy cities. So it is very likely that Seder is also an idiom describing certain men. It sounds like a bunch of niggers in like, your hometown. <laughs> Absolutely. It's exactly what's going on today. Satyrs are all over Mystery Babylon, crying out and dancing in the houses of men and crying out with, with their fellows as they occupy cities and demand that statues representing white Adamic history are torn down all over the place, right? That's what the satyrs are doing today. In the Enoch literature, there is a clear connection between the watchers, fallen angels, and spirits of bastards, which were called demons. So it is not unreasonable for medieval Christians to confound these together into a belief that demons could have sex with people, especially since the medieval church did not teach the truth. That speaking of devils, Satans, or spirits that are antichrists, the apostles were referring to actual people of their own time. So Weissman is making another straw man in order to argue against it, as we today do not believe that spirit demons can have sexual acts with people. Rather, we believe in embodied demons who are all around us here and now. So continuing with Weissman, he changes the subject. Witches have been historically infamous for consorting with devils and demons. The relationship is not solely for purposes of casting spells or curses on people, but also to have sexual relations with them. There are many stories about witches claiming to have had sexual intercourse with the devil. 
Some have confessed that their children were fathered by the devil, meaning the neighborhood Jew, right? These sexual escapades usually occurred during a Sabbath, or which is Sabbath? The Sabbath is a midnight meeting of witches, sorcerers, and demons. When worshiping the devil, the witches are said to approach him and assume different postures or dances to entice indiscriminate intercourse with the devil. Wow. I really believe that the whole New Age movement comes from Judaism, so I should clarify that. The term witch is broadly used, and its modern signification is not necessarily the signification it had always had. But I do believe that modern witchcraft is influenced by Judaism. Modern witches are mostly New Age hippie harlots and so-called warlocks, the male equivalent, New Age whoremongers. In the Middle Ages and in ancient times, there were many different traditions based on what we may call folk magic. This is also evident in scripture in places such as the magic of the priests of ancient Egypt before Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7, or the books of curious arts, which were burned at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Magicians are mentioned throughout scripture, and so are diviners, an art which is also known from throughout the pagan literature. Homer and the epic poets always mentioned diviners, or very frequently mentioned diviners, the tragic poets also. <coughs> Excuse me. The claim of wanton men and women to be having sexual relationships with gods or satyrs, often while in a state of drunken revelry, when they were really only having sex with other men, is indeed very old. But while, like all of the Greek mystery religions, the participants in their sacred rites were held to secrecy, and, and that's evident, in, and I didn't supply the citation here, but that's evident in the pages of Herodotus, where Herodotus mentioned certain sacred rites which he was not permitted to speak of, so he didn't describe them. It's evident in Herodotus and other historians of the classical era. So... The participants in the sacred rites of the Greek religions, pagan religions, they were all mystery religions, they were held to secrecy. But some later writers did venture to describe them. I wrote an essay in 2004, right? Actually, it was a pair of essays titled Broken Cisterns. In Broken Cisterns Part 1, along with other such descriptions, I wrote how Diodorus Siculus, he lived about 50 AD, he was writing, from 50 to perhaps as late as 30 AD. 
I wrote about how Diodorus Siculus had recorded the claim of a man that the Dionysiac rites, and when he says Dionysiac, he's, re he's referring to the Feast of Bacchus, because Dionysus, the Greek god, was also called Bacchus. The Dionysiac rites and the mysteries were simply a means to seduce the wives of other men. That's Theodore Siculus. In that same essay, I also wrote the following. Herodotus writes of Bel, or Baal, whom the Greeks equated with their Zeus, and the sacred precinct of that idol in Babylon. And he said, on the topmost tower, there is a spacious temple and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place, nor is the chamber occupied of nights by anyone but a single native woman, who, as the Chaldeans, the priests of this god affirm, is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. The historian goes on to relate an identical practice in Thebes, in Egypt, in a temple of Theban Zeus, which in Greek would be Amon. And I give citations from George Rawlinson's translation of Herodotus, who stated those things. Then, in my essay, my 2004 essay, I said, it should be common sense to most men, Christian and otherwise, that Bell himself certainly did not appear each night to some woman in this temple to have sexual intercourse with her. Even Herodotus said of this, but I, for my part, do not credit it that the God comes down in person. And, and that was much to his credit. But evidently, some man must have entered into these chambers, and quite possibly someone pretending to be Bell or Baal. Tertullian, the second century defender of the Christian faith writes, and that's not really correct. He was actually early third century, but he was born in the second century. Tertullian, the second century defender of the Christian faith writes, then if I add, and the conscience of every man of you will recognize it as readily. If I add that in the temples, adulteries are arranged, and that between the altars, the pander's trade is plied. The pander, meaning the pimp, the whoremonger. That, quite commonly, in the very vestries of temple keeper and priest, under those same holy fillets, crowns and purple garments, while the incense burns, lust is gratified. And that's from chapter 15 of Tertullian's Apology. So, ancient pagans 
imagined themselves to be having sexual intercourse with gods or demons. And in reality, it was only other men posing as gods or demons. And this was also characteristic of the so-called satyrs of ancient times. And this gives insight into why the God of the Bible despised Baal worship and why in the Bible Baal worship was connected to adultery and fornication. Because it was in the Baal temples that marriages happened at the altar, where in to a real Christian, marriage happens in a bed, and it's a lifelong commitment. In the Baal temples, marriage happened in the alt at the altar, and it was just fleeting gratification of lust. While it may only be conjecture. This may also be true behind many of these that, in fact, I would say this is most likely true. The truth behind many of these medieval witches who, not wanting to be condemned and burned for adultery, made up similar stories for, to cover for their own immorality. Oh, a demon. I got pregnant because a demon came down and had sex with me. The incubus and the succubus stories. Medieval Christians, not really knowing the truths represented by ancient literature, on account of the false interpretations offered by the Jews, confounded the biblical accounts. Most Christians were only acquainted with things such as sorcery, necromancy, and divination through the biblical accounts, which they had confounded. But none of that has anything to do with what we now interpret from the scriptures in according to our own seedline doctrine. None of it. This concept... I can imagine these pimps getting really rich off of all this. You know, um, a guy would visit a town for business... And as he's walking through the market, he would spot a woman and, uh, you know, go up to the leader of the temple and say, hey, can you get me that woman over there? I'll pay her. Well, well right. And, and, um, and yes. you know, the, these pimps would make so much. Sorry? That's, that's actually described somewhere in the early literature where, where a man wanted to have a sexual relationship with a certain woman at a temple and picked her out and went to the priest and the woman was to be married to a husband. I, I, I vaguely remember this, but I do remember it. And I must not have read it by 2004 when I wrote this essay, or I think I certainly should have included it. Maybe there would have been a broken cisterns part three, but this man wanted to have sex with this particular woman and she, she was actually um, forced by the priest be, because that was their authority. That, that was their religion. That priest was their authority figure, compelled by the priest to have sex with a god and to be called into this chamber. 
and she was put into this chamber. And this man that paid the priest went and had sex with her. And he paid the priest handsomely for that. There was a lot of profit. That's why Tertullian said that between the altars, between those pagan altars, the pander's trade is plied. Practiced, plied, practiced. That's what was going on in these ancient pagan temples. That's why Baal worship was so despised by the prophets of Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. Because that's what was going on. And it led to race mixing. And, and Herodotus describes um, something which is also alluded to in either Ezra or Nehemiah. I really don't remember which. In um, ancient Babylon, there was a temple where the women of the community came and they were compelled to by their religion to do this at least once in their life. They came and sat in the court in the temple and they sat there until a man, an anonymous man from the community, any man could walk up and throw a sum of money in her lap. And whatever the sum of money was didn't matter. The woman had to turn that money over to the temple and go have sex with that man, sexual intercourse with that man. And I believe that's described by Herodotus and it's alluded to in either Ezra or Nehemiah, I forget which the practice is. So th this that was sounds very like an ideal world for Jews, like their utopia. Absolutely. It, it's, it's a, yeah, right. But you know what? The same thing happens in bars and nightclubs across the Western world right now. It, it might be on different terms, but it's basically Women go to these temples, which are bars or nightclubs, and, and they are the, the equivalent of ancient temples without the religious pretense, because ancient temples, as you see in, in Romans chapter um, 14, ancient temples were where men went to eat and drink. Ancient temples, the pagan temples were not only for religious purposes, they were um, where pro you could buy prostitutes. They were where you ate. They were where you were entertained. They're the same as these entertainment meccas of today. They're no different. These entertainment meccas of today are basically the equivalent of ancient temples, but without the religious pretense because now instead of being guided by a priest people's minds are molded by the movie theaters the movie theaters in these temples that's what their minds are molded by so the priest isn't needed anymore now the entertainment industry serves as the intermedia intermediary between the rulers of this world and the people and the minds of the people are guided by the entertainment and the news industry it's all the same news and entertainment are all the same 
And the proof of what I'm saying, it should be obvious today. It's right in people's faces. Every time you walk out of your house and see some lemming with a mask on right now, his mind was guided to do that, to have that fear by this news and entertainment industry, which is the new priesthood. And, and science is a part of that priesthood. They're like the yeah, high and all priests. the race mixing that's going on. It, you know, people have learned that from the TV. Right. Right. The minds of people are molded by the television, entertainment, and so-called science industries. The science industry is, it is operated in a way that upholds everything taught by the news and entertainment industry. It, it's all made possible by the forsaking of God for a belief in evolution. That's at the core of it. Think about the Big Bang. The Big Bang Theory. It's oh, a different spin on the Tiamat story. Exactly. And, and I explained that in Pragmatic Genesis. The, the Big Bang Theory. And, and Carl Sagan's um, postulation that, that and, and he's the one that made it popular among people. He's one of the ones, anyway, among people today, people my age. His postulation that all life came from primordial ooze. Think about it. The Tiamat story. Tiamat created the gods and, and the life from the, the sea, the primordial sea. Tiamat the serpent represented the salt sea from which the gods were created. It's the same story. It's just modernized and put into secular terms. But it's the same story, and these Jews are the same ancient pagan devils who concocted that story 7,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, whatever. And they promote it today. The Big Bang is a world created from chaos. Tiamat the serpent created the ancient world from chaos. Yahweh our God is a God of order. His creation was created in an orderly fashion. And it had one law, not to sleep with those people who were created out of chaos. That tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, and you see that the order in nature as well, don't you? That if you went to a country, saw all the different, you know, life, the fish, the birds, and you came back a thousand years later, it'd be exactly the same, all in perfect order. Absolutely. There is a perfect order to creation. It's the Jew that creates chaos. After the pattern of his true God, the serpent Tiamat, and I'm not saying that Tiamat was a literal serpent. Weissman had admitted that the serpent was an entity which had its own order in the world, which was opposed to God's order. Weissman admitted the truth, and then he kept denying it. He knows. He's not doing any of this to defend what he thinks is true. He knows the truth. And he's denying the truth. He's trying to deny the truth in order to prevent people from coming to this truth. 
Weissman, Charles Weissman was a gatekeeper. This entire book is his role as a gatekeeper. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, or woe unto you, lawyers, hypocrites, for you do not enter into the kingdom of heaven, and you prevent those from entering who would enter. That's a gatekeeper. That's Jesus Christ describing the role of these modern gatekeepers that make these rabbit holes and prevent men from entering through the doors of truth. Yeah, the Jews and rabbis at the top, they must understand that they are devils. And Weissman likely understood that as well. Absolutely. He certainly understood the implications of two seed line. Because, as we heard Michael say here a few days ago, Weissman had admitted having at least a small amount of Jewish blood. Which means that he would fall into that category of devil if he admitted to C1. So he did everything he could, not only to, that he don't have to believe it, but so that nobody would believe it. And he's still doing that here. And, and this is going to, um, in my opinion, really expose the fact that Weissman was not a Christian. Where on page 44 of his book, he says, and I'm going to read three short paragraphs from Weissman. He says, many devil stories have arisen by rumor perpetrated by those who hate or oppose others or see them as being evil. Such persons are claimed to be the offspring of the devil. This doesn't discredit scripture. This is just people copying the scripture and, and, or from the scripture, mimicking things found in scripture and, and abusing them because it is abuse. It is slanderous, at least in most of these cases. So he cites the Encyclopedia of Witchcraft and Demonology, that book by Robbins, once again. And he says, legends, or Robbins says, legends, perhaps arising from rumors circulated by their enemies, credited many well-known historical figures with devilish origin. Robert, the father of William the Conqueror. Luther, Alexander the Great. Now, I never heard that. Plato, I never really heard that. Caesar Augustus, Scipio Africanus, Romulus, Remus, so he's mixing in mythological people with historical people. Merlin, and the whole race of Huns. It is true that the Goths and the Romans considered the Huns be, to be devils, but that's always been natural for men to demonize their enemies and dehumanize them. Then Weissman says, at the end of that citation, since the Jews have long been the self-sworn enemy of Christendom, they have been portrayed by many Christians throughout history as being of a devilish origin. It is a small step, then, to make them out to be the literal descendants of the devil or Satan. So, ostensibly, because certain men or nations have been slandered throughout history by their enemies, Weissman wants us to see the Jews in that same light, as if they were merely being slandered because they oppose Christianity. That's what he's saying. 
So where does that put Yahshua Christ? Christ had called his adversaries serpents and the offspring of vipers, meaning that even their parents were vipers. In diverse places in the gospel, he also called them children of their father, the devil, John 8, 44, and serpents and scorpions. I think that's maybe Luke chapter 10 or something like that. I honestly forget. So does that mean that Christ himself is no better than those men who slandered Plato or Luther? This is what Weissman implies, because these things had started with Jesus Christ. Christians saying these things about Jews are only following Christ. And Paul of Tarsus, and John, the beloved apostle, and even Peter, the apostle, they all referred to the enemies of Christ as devils or Satan. But once again, here we see that Charles Weissman is no Christian. How could he say this and be a Christian, that Yahshua Christ is merely a slanderer? Because that's what Christ would be if his words are not true. He's protecting Jews again. He's protecting Jews at the expense of Christ himself. How is he a Christian? How does that work? Perhaps we should subtitle this program, Witches, Warlocks, and Chucky. <laughs> because Charles is really no better than the Chucky doll, right? Yeah. And, and I think you could describe that in a way that fits, right? Oh, yeah. In the, the film um, Chucky, it's basically a no good like thief and robber with a huge criminal, um, you know, background and he's chased down by the police and shot. And in his last moments, he uses witchcraft and sorcery to transfer his body into uh, a doll called Chucky. And, you know, no, that doll ends up in the hands of families and he tries to possess and take over children so he can get a new body. Basically, um, you know, a Jewish dream, instead of facing the lake of fire, they could take over a, you know, a young Christian boy and keep living on. Well, well, right. And, and Weissman here is using witchcraft and sorcery in, in order to, um, in, in, in order to pervert the, the, the entire sense of the scripture so that he could live on. But I'm sure he's dead right now. But that's what he's doing, so that he and all his fellow Jews could live on. He's playing the role of Chucky. It's pretty clear to yeah. me that Charles should be Chucky. Yeah, his name's appropriate. Wow. Um, I also forgot to bring up, um, in terms of, you know, people believing in devils and all that in medieval Europe, uh, I think we mentioned it before. It's interesting that all the folklore, you know, the evil people are clearly describing Jews like, you know, Hansel and Gretel, but also the troll that lives under the bridge. If you want to get over the bridge, you have to pay the troll. It's well, very clearly just a Jew who's got an arrangement with the, you know, local lord or king that he'll extort money out of people trying to uh, get over that bridge and give a cut to the monarch. 
Well, that's how the Jews, that, that's how they got these, these um, petty noblemen in a corner. They would loan them money at exorbitant interest rates, and when the petty noblemen um, used the money to go off on some foreign venture, thinking he was going to make a ton of money in, in, in pillaging and booty, well, well, if he lost, he could never pay the Jew back. So the Jews very often who had noblemen in, in such a position would make a deal and say, okay, then you've got to give me this road here and I'll collect tolls on a road to get my money back. And the ogre under the bridge was the Jew who had the rights to collect tolls on a road. And, and that's how the, the, the um, common people from whom Grimm's fairy tales were collected saw the Jew as an ogre under the bridge, pouncing on them as soon as they go to cross the bridge so that he could extort some money out of them for them to cross the bridge. That's how it worked. And, and the and, witch in the woods to eat children? Yeah, the witches in the woods eating children, but look at Rumpelstiltskin. The, the, um, the, magical, the, the dwarf with magical powers that would spin straw into gold in exchange for the blood of a young Christian child. Tell me that's not a Jew. <laughs> that's definitely a Jew. And um, was it Oliver Twist? He had to like go back and edit it all, but Fagan, the, the guy who trains up little kids to pickpocket for him so he can run a crime ring. Right. There's another Jew. It, it's, um, wow. The, the literature of the Middle Ages is replete with warnings about so-called people on the outskirts or, or extremes of society who, who fit all of the um, traits and characteristics that Jews have had throughout history. No doubt, um, Germanic parents were seeking to warn their children about Jews. Don't go near them. You'll be eaten. That, yeah, and back that, to that TV, it's telling you the exact opposite, that you can feel completely safe if you're surrounded by 10 niggers, whilst yeah. you know, your instinct would tell you to get the hell out of there. Absolutely. That, that um, entire media entertainment indoctrination is about getting people to overcome that their natural fears, and, and those fears are justified. Look at the crime rates. Those fears are entirely justified. Look at the way these niggers chimp out all the time in these cities. That There's all kinds of stories in social media right now about white people who have been basically victimized by these niggers because these niggers have been taught that they have something coming, that we owe them something, when we really don't owe them a damn thing. They've been a drain on us for, for 200 years. That's punishment. That, that's our punishment until we repent and stop worshiping Baal, which we're still worshiping in all of these bars and entertainment centers across the Western world. <sighs> until we repent of that, we're going to suffer this punishment. The, the idols of the empire are being thrown down right now. It, it's a, um, we, we, okay, 
as white Christians, we hate to see the destruction of our white Christian society. But think about it. Is our white Christian society really Christian? All of the idols of the empire being thrown down. So the empire isn't going to last much longer if, if, it, if it doesn't have its idols. I mean, it, it's just a proof that society is being further and further balkanized, that wedges are being driven. And sooner or later, that's going to result in violent clashes on a much greater scale than what you see now. It's natural result because people aren't going to take this forever. But in the meantime, all of the idols are going to be thrown down. And, and it may well be that one way or another, all of these Baal temples are also going to be thrown, closed, <laughs> and torn down. One way or another, it has to happen. That's the, 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 um, the pattern we see throughout the scripture. And that's what has to happen for us to return to have a righteous society. I don't have any, um, any problem at all with taverns. They've been a necessity since the dawn of time. They serve um, useful functions. But when they become entertainment meccas that make possible, that facilitate all sorts of immorality, then they're not taverns anymore. Then they're bow temples. They're not taverns anymore. They, they've exceeded their usefulness, and they've become wicked. Okay. Thank you for joining me. And, and um, I, I think, you know, that last chapter of Weissman's is seven more pages. I think we're probably going to have at least three more of these presentations in this series. And, and I can't rule out a fourth. <laughs> I, I really do want to be thorough in, in addressing all of Weissman's treachery, because this is all just plain treachery. Yeah, we might as well go over it, you know, fully and not leave anything out. Well, thanks for helping us do that. And thanks for being here. No problem, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of the satyrs and shades out there. Thanks, right. right. Praise Yahweh. Good night.